Welcome to a Millennial's Guide to Real Estate Investing. Here is your host, Antoine Martel. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of A Millennial's Guide to Real Estate Investing. Today I have my good friend Jared Lichten here. He's been flipping houses since 2013 in Cleveland, Ohio. He mostly focused on high-end flips. Um, he was a lawyer in a past life. He has a contractor crew on his payroll, which is something a little bit unique about him. And he's working on six projects right now in the Cleveland, Ohio area. How's it going, Jared? What's up, Antoine? How's it going? Good. Thanks for Happy coming on the show. Yeah, yeah, for sure, absolutely. I've known you for uh, for you know a couple months now. I figured we'd uh, get together by now. <laughs> I think it's been a year. Last time we met. Yeah, crazy. Time flies when you uh, you know have a bunch of projects yeah. on your hand. You know. Yeah. Well, I think we met. So we actually met in L.A. at a networking event through Bigger Pockets. It was focused only on Cleveland, Ohio, and that was the first Bigger Pockets meetup I had actually gone to. Um, was that your first one that you went to as well? Um, it was probably one of my first ones out here. And I mean, as you know, there's dozens of events every month or BP, depending upon where you are. Yeah. But like for whatever reason, and I don't know if that's uh, like this in some of the markets that you work in, like Memphis or yeah. Birmingham. But I think that m maybe 25 to 50 percent of the out of state investors in Cleveland are for some reason in Southern California. I don't yeah. know why. I don't know how it's shaked out like that. But the majority of people who are investing in Cleveland, it's like Canada, Israel, California. And <laughs> that's probably about it. Yeah. And everyone else is in Cleveland. Yeah, no, it's just I weird like how that kind of shakes out. Yeah. But, and I was surprised yeah. too how many people from Israel and Australia too was another big one that I heard. There was a ton of investors investing. And they would just call you know property management companies in Cleveland. My, the one I'm using too, they get phone calls all the time from Israel or Australia. Uh, where they're just trying to buy, you know, turnkey or buy rentals off the MLS. Yeah, the I know. It's crazy, man. I mean, like managing rental property for me, it's just as hard in Akron to Cleveland as it is in yeah, California. Yeah. You know, if you have a relationship with your tenant exactly. and you kind of know the property and you have a handyman that can fix stuff, you know, being a thousand miles away is the same thing as being, you know, too far to drive. Yeah. It's not that exactly. big of a difference. That's what I tell people too. Because people, so Jared, you're in Newport Beach, right? Yeah. Okay. And I'm in LA Culver city area. And so I get people telling me all the time who want to invest in real estate. They're like, Oh, I'm going to buy a rental property in Fresno. And then if something goes bad, like I can just drive over there. And I'm like, no, I'd rather have a property out all the way in Cleveland <laughs> and like not have that be the ability to go and like always get involved in certain things when things go wrong and have yeah. that, have everybody set up in a way where you don't have to be involved with something. If shit hits the fan, you know, they can solve it and you want your team to be set up in that way as yeah, well for sure i mean think about you the problems you've had with like some of your rental properties like what's what are your like top five things that can go wrong like your hot water tank goes out roof leaking yeah. you know tenant has a problem with like a broken window or door are you actually going to fix that stuff yourself probably yeah. not yeah you know can you i can't replace a hot water tank so yeah. i'm still going to be calling someone whether they're in alabama or they're in you know california yep it's just a matter of skill set rather than location exactly yeah. but but if it's in fresno then i feel like i would be obligated because i'm like oh it's right there. like this weekend i would just be like oh i'm gonna go pick up a hot water tank and give it to the contractor to save a hundred bucks or whatever but i'm way too lazy i'd rather just <laughs> yeah I, I pay people every day to do stuff for me yeah. i've gotten used to it so yeah no that's true all yeah. right, so let's talk a little bit about you, how you got started. So right out of college, you went to law school, correct? And then you became a lawyer right out of college? Yeah, so it's funny. I think a lot of people who listen to your show might be a little on the younger side. Um, I actually graduated college in 2009. So I was dealing with the recession. No, mm -hmm. None of my friends really had jobs. Yeah. Uh, I'm 32 now. So like back then I was 22, 23. And I don't remember any of my friends having jobs out of college. So most of us just either went to grad school or we let it ride and found a job that just didn't really suit our skill set. And um, going to law school, you know, it's three years. Um, I was always really good at arguing. And I figured that uh, sometime in my career it would uh, kind of pay off. It would, it would definitely pay off to be able to protect myself and do a lot of different things with real estate, which I was always interested in. But uh, went through law school, kind of bounced around and uh, got uh, the first job I got was in oil and gas. I really hustled. Like, again, like I met you at a meetup event. Uh, I did not really even have good grades through college or law school 
C student, but I knew a lot of people and relationship networking was kind of my thing, not in like a disingenuous way, but like that's literally like the way that you can get from point A to point B in this world is just by who you know. So my entire third year of law school, I just networked really hard and I got a really good job, job that I probably wouldn't have gotten if I didn't know people and go to networking events my entire third year. But it was before I took the bar, so I kind of cruised through that and wasn't too nervous. Passed the bar in February 2013, started working at a huge law firm in oil and gas, and it was fucking miserable. Excuse my wow. French. But I hated it. Um, I think, you know, for a lot of people, you work your whole time in school and you have this kind of like idea of what the corporate world's going to be like. Um, and when you come out having three bosses, you know, no flexibility, people telling you where to drive every single day. Uh, I had a lot of uh, rural uh, travel. Uh, basically, I would draft oil and gas title for these people who wanted to drill in Appalachia. So I was I had to run title from present back to like 1860 for oil and gas surface interests uh, in like Wetzel County, West Virginia, Greene County, Pennsylvania, areas where like nobody would ever want to travel, no good restaurants, no hotels. And so to actually go to the courthouse and abstract a single parcel uh, that gave me a, like a lot of knowledge on title and oh, how real estate transactions worked. Yeah. So basically for one house, like if you sent me the address to one of your houses, I could run the entire surface interest back to, you know, the originality of uh, when the county started keeping records uh, by using cues from maps, from probate records. There's a lot of different tricks to it, but it kind of does in my research now for my real estate investing. I kind of know the tips and tricks on how to navigate county auditor sites uh, how to look at tax maps and kind of how to look up owners. Uh, it's just, it, there's a lot of different reasons it's given me advantages in real estate, but that was my first law job. Uh, and again, I didn't like it. I did it for about two, two and a half years and I just quit. So sure enough, um, while I was working, um, I was, I started flipping houses because okay, it was just something I was interested in. Yeah. I think, you know, bigger pockets like 2011, maybe I was reading about the market coming back and, um, you know, you can get some deals. So Growing up, I worked for a contractor. Um, and you grew up in Cleveland, right? Yeah. So growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, I went to high school there. Um, then I went to college at Miami, Ohio, um, law school down in Houston. But after law school, going back to Cleveland, yeah. uh, living up in Northeast Ohio again, I figured why not just link up with one of my other contractors that I used to know and do work for, you know, tiling, drywalling, that kind of thing and just do a project with them. So I figured I'm gonna learn a ton. If I break even, great. Even if I lose a little bit of money, great. But at least I would understand real estate finance. I'd understand contractors a little bit better after my first one. So basically I did a couple. I think I made maybe like eight, $9,000 in my first one. Even though it was a big deal, um, a long construction process. It was, I bought it for 120, I think. Put like $65,000 into it. I might have sold it for in like the low twos. But you know, I didn't make a ton of money, but it was like, damn, I had all my money and all my energy uh -huh. in that. I didn't know about raising private money. I couldn't yeah. think about borrowing money from friends or family for that because I figured, you know, I have to know what I'm doing first and then I could go out there and ask for it. Now raising money is no problem for me. In fact, I probably raised too much money. You know, I probably would rather use my money a little bit more. But now that I have the hang of things, I realize a lot of mistakes I made back then. Um, it was just a matter of like leverage, really. Why yeah. would I leverage all my own money and go W-2 income that's why I kind of stayed at my job because I was an attorney making good money. I leveraged that, went conventional financing, putting down 20% on an investment property, 30-day you know, closing process yeah. that, as opposed to like when you pay cash or when you go hard money, you can go you know, 10, 15 days. So it's interesting kind of looking back how I did it. It's probably how most people end up doing their first flip. It's just a bank will give me a loan. I will finance. I mean what's great about when I started, my contractors I worked with actually accepted credit cards. So I went and opened up an Amex account uh -huh. based on how much money I made at my law firm. And then I opened up my Chase account, uh, which was maybe like fifteen, twelve or thousand dollars. But that's huge. Because yeah. if a contractor accepts fifteen grand, that's a good chunk to get started. Yeah. And then, you know, by four, six weeks down the line, you might have another fifteen grand in your pocket. So like I kind of leveraged contractors with credit cards a little bit. Um, and then at the end of the project, when I got that check for, you know, $108,000, sure enough, you know, a lot of investors out there on Instagram posting pictures of shit like that, <laughs> not all of it's profit. Yeah. Uh, in fact, a huge majority of it is rehab funds and holding costs and taxes and shit yep. that people don't talk about. Yeah. So watch out for people like that. So, <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah, I learned like the basis, a good foundation for, you know, what flooring should cost, um, how much a basic roof should be. 
um, you know, what kind of what kind of properties to target as opposed because I've done flips on hundred year old plus homes. I've yeah. done flips on houses built in the sixties. Those are way easier. Um, and I just kind of understand what stuff, sh basically the best advice I could give to people who are starting out is like, use the first project as a catalyst to understand what things should cost and like what they should look like. Like what does good work look like? Can you yeah. go into a house and say, oh, this is shitty work. Yeah. Or can you go into a, a flip and say, oh man, they did a really nice job here. Yeah. Are there grout lines straight? Are there, you know, uneven edges? Are the appliances installed correctly? Uh, look at the ceiling. Are there any like, you know, floating mess ups or cracks yeah. like there's so many different things that you kind of miss when you just go into an like say even go into an open house that's just for sale that's one of the easiest ways you can get uh, yeah. kind of context into what a good flip looks like because even in california you go into stuff and there's still fucking pencil lines around the vents and the stove there's still uneven edges there's messy grout lines there's toilets that aren't set straight there's just yeah. so many issues that you see and you can kind of say, oh, well, I would never do that. Well, I would never get into stuff like that. But like, again, managing from afar can be an issue. So knowing what stuff should look like and how much like flooring should cost, how much it should cost to install hot water tank, things like that should just be normal, automatic. You should not get ripped off on big jobs. If yeah. you avoid getting ripped off on like getting a new roof or like getting, you know, your floor refinished, avoiding those kind of mistakes are almost just as good as like being aggressive. Uh, and making the right mistakes rather than avoiding like the bad ones. Yeah, true. So, so, how, so you were working at the law firm. You got W two income, which allowed you to buy properties that needed rehab work for you to flip with conventional financing, right? Yeah. So you did that a couple of times, but what, what pressured you, or at what point? This is a problem with a lot of people that I talk to. It's like, okay, even if they're flipping houses and they're after their day job, which you seem to figure out, which takes a lot of time. And it could be because you grew up in Cleveland, you kind of knew the market, you already had a contractor that you kind of trusted on the ground, right? Um, and you had all this experience with title work, so you can kind of pull title on certain properties and see, um, you know, even see comparable properties, I guess you can pull from that as well. But at what point did you, did you actually make the move and quit that lawyer job? How many flips were you in? Was it just the first flip? You got that paycheck and you're like, I hate this job so much. I'm just going <laughs> to risk it all. And like, how did you make that decision? No, I was in the middle of my third one. Uh, and I actually was podcasting about my third one at the time. It was just called flip. It's still on iTunes. I still get like people messaging me to this day about <laughs> it. And it was weird what happened in my life after that. I'll get into that in a minute, but basically, um, I had gotten my third flip. It was a really good deal. Um, it was listed for a hundred thousand. I basically negotiated him down to like 50, um, wet basement, hundred year old house in Highland square in Akron, uh, which if you oh, know, yeah. Akron Highland square is a really hopping area. Even now, like it's even hotter than it was back in 2015. Uh, the city's put a lot of public money into developing that, but anyways, it was a good deal. So I figured why not just podcast about it, make it live and kind of just build a little bit of an online profile. So some people can Google me, people know who I am. If I do need to raise money in the future, it'll be a great kind of catalyst. It'll make me a little bit more known. Cause if you're a real estate investor and you ask for money, what's the first, what's the first thing a person's going to do? They're probably going to Google you. Uh -huh. They're probably going to find out if you have any bankruptcies or like lawsuits or anything that you're a part of, uh, make sure that you're an honest person. And obviously being an attorney, you know, it gives you that kind of like, uh, stellar like foundation to go out and ask like say hey I'm an honest person ethical I can ask for money I can do a project with you however if there's you know seven or eight podcasts you've been on and you blog and you talk about real estate investing it gives you a lot more uh, you know of a of a foundation to get out there and open your mouth and ask so that's kind of why I did that and um, it was a good idea because it allowed me to uh, network with a lot of people that I didn't think like other other investors too, because that's a really big thing in something like yeah. LA. I don't think other investors are very helpful. Uh, I think it's very very competitive, and everyone's kind of like in an inclusive uh, mindset. It's like this deal is mine, this uh -huh. area is mine, rather than oh I'm gonna help out a young guy who really is kind of just getting his or her feet wet. Um, in Cleveland, I mean, I had numerous investors who were experienced sit down with me and tell me everything. They'll give you. I mean, people straight up give you, hey, I need a good landscaper. Hey, I need someone for windows. Experienced people don't give a shit. If you, it, I mean, unless you're yeah. keeping like someone on payroll, they're not going to hold you, you know, hold those people to their chest and not give out information. It's like, are you really going to be an effect to my business helping you? Yeah. Like, 
jumped on the phone with people and straight up told them how to invest in Cleveland Heights and they still don't do it. So it's like, a very, <laughs> yeah. like the majority of people aren't going to do what you advise. And even if they do, is that really going to affect your business? You know, it makes me feel good that I'm able to help people. Yeah. And you know, I've, I've definitely done fine, like partnering on deals with people and helping them out. Um, but that's important for, you know, things like you, like you're putting out this information, you're a successful investor. You don't have to do this type of thing, but you understand that, you know, it's good for your business. It's good for networking and it's good just to kind of get a profile and you put your brand out there because when you're an investor, nobody really knows who you are unless you're putting out a little bit of content. If you're putting out a little bit, like that's better than nothing, but like to just be silent and just to go out there and say, Hey, I'm going to syndicate an apartment deal or I'm going to like, I want a joint venture on a flip. If no one knows who you are, like they're definitely going to be a little bit more skittish. Yeah. That's how it is. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, but I mean, even by, yeah, and even by having this podcast and like you said, raising money, but once you have that social presence or even have like a LinkedIn profile with a bunch of people on it that you're, and you're posting little pieces of content or having an Instagram profile, even though it doesn't mean that like, like it doesn't, sh- it shows how many deals I've completed, but somebody could go and make that same exact content. And even if they flip two houses, but yep. they would have so much more rapport with people as soon as they sit in the room and they're like, oh, yeah, I listen to your podcast. And yeah. then they, the person already knows everything about you. Your meetings shrink from one hour long to 15 minutes long because people yep. already have this whole background. And so that's what I found, too, like with the raising money side of things. It's like if people have listened to my podcast before or watched my Instagram, then those meetings are like 10 minutes now because it's just like, okay, what do you have available? What can I invest in? Or what rentals do you have available? Which one do you recommend? And then it's like, it's very quick because people already have that rapport, which is something that's super hard to build in the beginning when you, when you are young, when you're on your third project, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, think about it. Like when you're an investor and you sit down with like a no, a nobody, you've never met them and you're considering maybe like partnering with them or whatever, like it's all about proof of concept for those people. So if they, if you have no like proof of concept that you've completed something or that you've done deals in the past or that you have like local market knowledge, you know, it's very hard. So like the first couple meetings, like I had a guy recently write me a check for like 15 grand on a project, which was I will tell you straight up, it is nothing for him. He is a very successful attorney in his 40s. He has a lot more than 15 grand, but it's just like a get to know you kind of thing. Like, hey, I only need a little bit of rehab funds on this project for another investor to come in and write me a check. You know, it's not that much money in the grand scheme of things, but it definitely does help out my rehab. Um, I'm okay giving him interest on it. And he was fine doing it with me, but we had talked probably four times before that we went to dinner. I met him at a meetup. You know, we kind of jump on the phone once every few weeks, say, Hey, how's it going? Hey, how's it going? So it's important. Like, I think the best, another really solid piece of advice is like, even if you don't need to raise money, always like nurture relationships around you. Cause like, even if you talk to people like every two weeks, you should be in the, uh, I mean, I talked about this with you too this week. It's like, if me and you needed to raise a million dollars, for an apartment or something, we could do it this week. But the only reason we can is because we've spent years talking to people and they know what we do. Yep. So like, you should always be able to know two or three people to call for, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 grand, uh, you know, after you get some deals going, those kind of relationships should exist before you need the money and not the other way around. Yep, exactly. And I think that, so I get another question that I get all the time that I don't think I've mentioned on this podcast before is should I create uh this is going like really social media heavy, but should I create a, a certain, like a business profile or should I do everything under my personal name? So I do everything under my personal name. This podcast is just my personal name. There's no business affiliated with it. Even though I may talk about it, it's, you know, unrelated to me. My Instagram profile was literally like me growing up as a kid. I had that Instagram with all the people I grew up with. And then I just changed the whole content. I deleted everything that was old and I just started posting real estate stuff. Now people freak out when they want to do that because they're like, Oh, these people are just going to, are going to hate me and like think that I'm just blasting content at them. That's irrelevant. Well, it doesn't matter. Those people will unfollow you. But what it has done for me is that everybody that I grew up with, which I already had a rapport with is now out in the workplace. They look at their phone and they say, Oh damn, Antoine's doing this. That's pretty cool. Like he's in real estate. Next time they're in a conversation, they're talking about real estate. They're going to say, Hey, my buddy Antoine, I went to college with or high school with or middle school with he's doing real estate. You should connect him. You know yeah. how many deals I've done and how much money I've raised just from doing that from those 2000 people that I've grew, grown up with and, and already, forgotten about. Yeah. Forgotten and forgotten about, about probably. Yeah. But and, they, they pay attention to their social media feed. They know what's going on on Facebook and Instagram. Like, I, I mean, shit, like I'm, I've raised a hundred thousand dollars from this guy who I, 
I went to, I was on a fraternity with, but I hadn't talked to him in 10 years. Yeah. And he texted me, he said, Hey, how, you know, I see you're doing a lot of real estate stuff. I'd like to talk to you about it. We jumped on the phone for like two and a half hours, catching up, you know, personal life, professional life, whatever. But if you haven't talked to someone in 10 years, but they knew you from back in the day, it's way easier to have some sort of like rapport with them. Yep. And like, you know, it's just everything now with like your brand online is like a trust game. So like, with your, are you saying like other people would want to delete their old Instagram because they have like pictures drinking beer and like, you know, going and partying? Or do you think that people just have egos and they don't want other people to know that they're trying to be successful or they yeah. are uncomfortable with their parents or their family trying to go against the grain? Maybe, you know, maybe you have a job that's like, oh, my parents and grandparents have been engineers forever. But like if they saw me talking about real estate and, you know, posting about houses and stuff, maybe they'd be disappointed. Who gives a shit? Yeah. It's like at some point, you know, you're going to have to own up to what you're doing in life and like. I'm fine with the fact that like I am an attorney and I don't practice law now. Like I don't have an ego towards that kind of stuff. But like if someone wants to create a separate like business, say they want to be a lender or they want to, you know, do real estate apart from like something personal, maybe there is a professional conflict of interest. Yeah. Uh, maybe they're like a mortgage broker and they want to get yeah. into investing in there. You know, That's so there true. are certain reasons why people would want to split that off. But if it's for the reasons of like, you know, I don't want my high school friends knowing that I'm successful. I don't want my family to, you know, know that I'm doing something secret. You may as well just, you know, <laughs> sold to the world and tell everybody what you're up to anyways, because nowadays people are going to figure it out. Yeah. You know, no, I, I, I agree. Yeah. And I think it is that it's that fear of, of failure, too, because who's going to post content or tell people what they're doing if they're like if they don't know if it's going to work yet or. Until they flipped a hundred houses, they're not going to tell anybody because if they fail, then everybody's going to judge them, right? I started posting content, I think, on deal ten or deal fifteen. So I, was, I had done some projects, but it wasn't like me bragging. It was me just like showing people in my day to day, like, oh, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm looking at. That's all you yeah. need to do. Yeah. If you're learning and you're sharing people what you're learning, that person on the other side of the screen is learning as well. I played soccer this morning with a bunch of guys, and one of them is like an actor on Netflix. And he was like, Oh yeah, I watch your content all the time. You know, it's, I have all this, I have, I've been, you know, investing in, no, he hasn't been investing, but he's been an actor for a really long time and he has money and he's always been interested in real estate and real estate investing. He's like, dude, your content's so like informational. There's nobody else that's, you know, pushing out content. That's actually like, that doesn't just say, learn how to invest with little money down. It's just like, yeah. I'm actually, show, you know, and you you have been doing the same thing too with your whole idea about the vlog kind of thing, which we can get into as well. But it's like, you know, creating content that shows people actually what the deals look like, yeah. actually what the numbers look like, how they go down, et cetera. Yeah. Here's, here, I'll say this, just I'm glad you touched on like the social media stuff because like the biggest fucking problem I see, and uh, again, on when you're in this space, <laughs> like when you start putting out content, it's like, you run into other people who are doing similar shit yeah. and they want to give you like a portion and hide the rest behind like fucking paywall. Do you realize how many people out there who are way less experienced than you and are selling courses on how to wholesale hundred houses or yep. how to do turnkey, like the, the amount of energy it takes to actually create a course. And I think the biggest question is this is like, when you see somebody like that, when you're say you're targeted with like an Instagram ad, and this is good for like a lot of younger people watching, Ask yourself this. It's like, if this person is that successful, why the fuck do they need to sell you a course for a yep. hundred bucks? That's the why, first thing I, if, if I'm making, I, like I'm, I'm fucking big boy toys over here. I'm uh, not just like making money, but spending money. I shit through, you know, 40, 50 grand a month for my construction company. So like, why would someone like really look at me and say, Oh, I really need to learn from this guy. I'm going to pay him a hundred bucks. I don't give like a hundred dollars. is just, uh, why are, you have to ask yourself <laughs> why these people need to monetize their following. Like, why yeah. are you monetizing people when, in, if you really cared about them, you know, the Gary V model of just like giving away everything for free and expecting people to come back. I mean, you're going to probably start making money off consulting other realtors. You're probably going to make money off consulting other investors or even just joint venturing with bigger, bigger partners because yeah. you are giving out better information. You're giving it out for free and it's more shareable. No one's going to share content online. That's like, here are the top three things to flip out whatever yeah, yeah. they're gonna like if i mean all the video content that i'm planning on starting pushing out and like we've talked about a little bit is like real shit i i'm telling you like how to get through a home inspection how to deal with buyers who are threatening to back out of a contract how to negotiate like there's a lot of stuff that is not hidden behind a paywall 
that should be put out there and it's not. It's yeah. because people are greedy and they're inclusive. Again, like people are just trying to monetize their following and like instead of giving first and then asking, like if I can put out content for a year straight, I would probably just have a conference and charge a hundred bucks for people to go. It's not that big of a deal, but like that ask should not be given first. It yeah. should be given last. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like, yeah, that's, no, just, that's not how life should be. Yeah, and the ones that I hate are the ones who post every other day of their Lamborghini and they're driving in their Audi and then they're like, oh, buy my course. It's like, dude, you didn't, you just showed me like money that you bought. I don't know like who your parents are, first of all, yeah. and who gave you the money to buy that car. And even though you may have a successful business, you're not sharing any information about how you got there or whatever. Yeah. So, if for me, I've never bought one of those yeah. courses that are like that yeah. from those. Instagram. I've never bought a course either, but I'll say this, the, the, in real estate, the flashier and like sleazier, the person <laughs> looks probably like the person who's like an old dude, balding and dockers is probably like the best information you're going to yeah. get. But like, it's hard too. Cause like for video and like whatever on Instagram, like you're scrolling through, it's like not the sexiest stuff. I mean, yep. I mean, the stuff I want to put out is more a little bit along the lines of construction and yeah. like what stuff should kind of look like, how to manage people, how to do like bigger real estate projects. So like I believe that there's absolutely like more people out there who would share and who would like tag other people based off like the quality of the information. Yeah. And it's like if people people are going to say, hey, you hear about this guy, Antoine, he puts out a lot of really good information on his podcast. He doesn't do like a nine minute, you know, info story and then, you know push people to his landing page. Yeah. Like he's actually giving out real information. That's going to bring you deals. It's going to bring you, you know, better leverage in the future, however yeah. you want to put it. Yeah. And you know, that's just how it's, it's better for people like us. You exactly. Know? Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people ask me why I'm making a podcast and why I spend the time doing it. And I think it's like, if I can educate even just one or two of the people who are listening, um, and they go and start doing their own deals. They start making money, et cetera, et cetera. And then an apartment building deal lands and I'm looking for a joint venture partner. Well, I have a bunch of people behind me now who are interested in working with me instead of going and, and like, I've taught those people how to do certain things. They have my same mentality. Um, that's kind of what the, it's again, like the Gary V model, bringing up the whole tide so that we can go and take down a 500 unit apartment building in the future. Instead of selling, making five grand from one guy who's going to like either have a good experience with my course or a terrible experience. And yeah. now my rapport online is pretty bad. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, between me and you, I mean, if if we had a 200 unit apartment in Cleveland, I'd take it down with you. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure we could find a way or, you know, like it's just a matter of like being able to finance it, being able to put yep. the people together. And, you know, that stuff doesn't come without some sort of trust between people. So trust is like the fickle, you know, mortar that builds energy in these like it, that's it's the same way a house is built, you know, yep. trust in a real estate transaction between the investor, between the contractor, between, you know, the person on the ground, the person financing it, acquisition, like all of that stuff is fit together with trust. Agreed. And like, it's also the easiest thing that fucking burns down buildings is like yeah. when you don't have trust, I mean, shit, I've had, you know, breakups with partners. I've had, you know, contractors rip me off. I've had, you know, lot, multiple, you know, five, six figures, you know, lawsuits. Like it's just, you, you have to be able to protect yourself. And when trust is just kind of thrown by the wayside, it, you know, tumbles the, tumbles the building down. I agree. I agree. Yeah. And then it's a pain in the ass to find somebody else that you can trust yeah. again. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's get back to your story. That was a whole tangent on social media. Um, but so you, you had flipped a couple houses while you were still a lawyer. You, then you quit your job just cause you had enough projects going on and you were like, all right, this is time to quit. Is that how it went down? No, I did not have enough projects going on. I had one and I figured, uh, I mean like again, to, to step back and really look at someone like me who, I think a lot of people put a focus on money in this world like, oh, what's your salary? How much yeah. do you make? A lot of the intangibles, they don't see like the stress it puts on your family to be away from them. Uh, the stress of having, you know, multiple bosses kind of like lump, lump their work on you in the morning when, you know, you didn't have to do anything else. And your decision making in life, like I was 26 and I had a six figure salary and I didn't have anything to spend it on. Yeah. I had a house. I had a car, I had a girl, like what else could I possibly want, but like less stress. And I was the most stressed I'd ever been. I wasn't yeah. taking care of myself. Um, all I thought about was work. And I mean, really like when I, so when I went in to quit my job, this is like early 2015, I told the guy, I was like, Hey, I'm going to focus on my real estate stuff. Um, and the guy, and I think my manager at that time was like, yeah, you can come back anytime you want. 
And I was like, well, I could probably like triple my salary and I'd still have the same answer. For you. <laughs> like, I just didn't like working for that company. Yeah. So, you know, you'd be surprised at how easy it is to get work after you've kind of like press the pause button. It's just people are afraid of going a few weeks without a paycheck. Yeah. And if you don't have that back, uh, that backstop, and if you don't have like a, cause at the time I had rental property, you know, I had the, besides the flips, I had a couple of rentals making me, you know, a couple hundred bucks. It wasn't that much, yeah. but it was enough to survive on. And if I wanted to sell one of my rental properties, I'd, it's like a bank. Like I had like 30 ish thousand in it. So like in an emergency, it's always good to be able to have a couple backstops. Yeah. So I left that job making good money, but only having a little bit of real estate knowledge. Got it. And so when I was doing the podcast, the people who followed along, it kind of like ended abruptly. Yeah. I sold it. I made a couple thousand bucks and I moved back to Houston briefly uh, with my now wife uh, for personal reasons. And I figured I'd get into real estate there. I'd get into much bigger projects. And probably about a month after I moved to Texas, I really messed up my back really bad. I was drinking one night, I came back to my apartment and I jumped over this gate. And the next morning I woke up with shooting pain down my leg. It was the worst pain, uh, I could not, I would not wish it on my worst enemy. And without getting into super long tangent, um, I, I tried what I could for six months. I was on steroids, painkillers, couldn't walk. Um, I had two steroid injections in my spine, oral steroid pack. Um, I was almost like, I like couldn't even walk my dogs. Like I couldn't walk to the bathroom some days. So I had a large herniated disc in my back. And I found this chiropractor on the internet in California that said, hey, you don't need surgery. You know, six or seven doctors that told me I needed surgery anyways. And so I was like, well, screw you. I'm like 28 years old. Like why I'm pretty healthy otherwise. Yeah. Um, you know, your, your body should have the ability to heal these things. So I flew out to California and long story short, this chiropractor saved my life. I worked with him majority of 2016. And then I really got back into real estate hard um, later that year. So getting back into it in Cleveland and linking up with my now current contractor, you know, that's how I kind of like scaled my operation. And I got told it, you, you know, that's, yeah. you know, now having my own construction company, that's just like how I'm living my life. Yeah. And, and what was the reason? Let's talk about that. So you have a contracting company that's on your payroll in Cleveland, but you live in L.A., or Orange County, whatever you want to call it. So why why did you make that decision to, instead of hiring a GC like what I do out of state, why did you feel like it was necessary? Was there a bunch of bad contractors that you had which forced, which made you realize, hey, I just should just do this by myself? Or what made you bring all those contractors in-house instead of outsourcing it? Um, it was probably because I knew in order to get really big, I needed to keep guys busy. And what a lot of people who invest maybe in the South or in on the West Coast don't realize is real estate in cold weather areas is very cyclical. So when it gets cold, a lot of guys lose work. And so they get on the phone and they're going to say, Hey, anybody got any work for me? If you run out of stuff to give guys and they're not completely busy 24 yeah. seven, they're not going to be loyal to you. My guys are hundred percent loyal to me. Yeah. I pay them a little bit more, but I always make sure that there's work for them. I always make sure there are projects to be had. And it does put a little bit of more pressure on me, but it also gives me, like, if I don't have good guys that I can call at any moment and say, hey, can you take care of this problem? Hey, can you take care of this? Uh, John, who's my general contractor, manages everything for me. He kind of manages the, the guys. He places them at certain properties. He knows when the HVAC and when the plumbing and all this stuff has happened. He pulls permits for me. Um, he does all the management. And in return, I pay him a salary. So to get really big, I knew that I needed to have my own crew. And yeah, you lose guys occasionally. Guys will quit or, you know, we'll have to fire an electrician, have to find a new one. But the core group of like our six or seven guys that we have, I've been able to keep fully employed for over a year. And I, I feel almost like that is the biggest thing that I'm proud of because these are guys that are blue collar. They don't have like a lavish lifestyle. They've had, you know, their fair share of bumps in the road in life. And these guys eat. These guys are like putting a roof over their family's heads because of what I'm doing. And from what me and John have been able to put together, there's no joke about it. Like there's like seven families that are eating because of me. Like that feels good. And when I talked to John originally, he had other guys in our crew. You know, he said something like, oh, Chuck, you know, he's been struggling for, you know, maybe over a year, he hasn't worked for the same guy for more than two or three weeks at a time. And when he started working for me, I was like, oh shit, this guy's really talented. This guy shouldn't have to scrap for work. But when I realized that guys like me, especially in a city like Cleveland that's smaller, 
I'm more of a unicorn. There are not that many people doing what I do, the higher end rehabs, you know, putting $100,000 in a project. It's not a lot. Of, this isn't Southern California. There's not that many people like me that are willing to like take that risk. Yeah. And so, you know, to work for someone like me, yeah, they're going to be working consistently, but that's all they want. They're not trying to get raises. They're not trying to like move up in the company. They just want to work. And there's so many guys there that just need to be able to get that consistent paycheck every week. Yeah, I can't offer them health insurance yet. Yeah, I can't offer them like, you know, any sort of like benefits. But yeah. these are guys that just like literally need to put food on the table and they're more than happy with like the consistency. Yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I think we did we did something similar where we counted how many families were living under our roofs and it was like two hundred and twenty people, not families, but people were actually living under our properties and we're like, holy shit, that's you know, pretty cr- we're providing like a clean, safe and livable place for all these families where you go look at the neighborhood and a lot of these places are rehab jankily the floor is coming up and they're still renting them up for the same Mm -hmm. price that we are so we price our rentals you know pretty aggressively to not get the highest amount of rent to meaning aggressively meaning um with the market so if the rents are 700 i'm not listing at 750 because my property is better i'm listing at 700 so that i can get those normal blue collar people, blue collar families to live in there, but they have a much nicer place to live. We take professional photos of all our things. You know, Cleveland, like in these neighborhoods that I'm doing, there's nobody's taking professional photos of their rental property listings. They just put up one janky photo from the car window and and that's it. And they say, call this number to rent it out. So yeah, yeah, you're right. It does. There is a feel good factor to having, you know, people eating. Do you think about that a lot? Like, do you think about that? Like how many people you've affected? No, I, I don't think about it that much. I mean, me neither to some extent. I mean, I don't own as much rental property as you do, but to really think about that and think about what their other options are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Southern California, there's plenty of options, but in Cleveland, like it's literally the difference between your kid going to a good school or going to the, the wrong zip code and having to go to some shitty public school that yeah. their kids are going to get beat up all the time. And like, I have a property right now, like just on the edge of like orange, which is a really good school district. And right next to that is Warrensville. Yeah. You know, you have some houses in Warrensville, you know, the difference. Yeah. Uh, but I can rent my shit for like almost $2,000 a month. And like along the other zip code where the school district is not good at all. I mean, maybe 1100, a thousand bucks for a small house. Yeah. So it do, you have to be very careful about school districts and zip codes and knowing where you invest. And you know, that's your expertise. Like really, I mean, you, you know, a little bit more nuances about that kind of stuff but you know it makes me feel good like i think all my tenants are pay on time and they treat me nice when a repair needs to happen and i kind of need to coordinate a a handyman coming in i think they respect me a lot more because you know they know that i've put the time and effort into into making sure that their property functions correctly no that's true yeah and if your tenants do care then you know they're going to care about the property because they're living in it right so if you show them that so like for example i just bought five houses in a row in Memphis, Tennessee. I went on, so the rents are like 600 bucks a month, but they should be 725, but I bought them with inherited tenants. I'm gonna go and paint, rehab the whole exterior, put brand new roofs on, and then I'm gonna ask them, hey, can you have a rental increase to 725? And they're gonna be like, oh, absolutely, yeah, you just did all this work for us, and can you fix this one, this other thing in our house before we sign the lease? Okay, sure. Then I get them to sign on 725 a month, because they're because they're happy mm-hmm. now they know their their roof is not leaking anymore and all this kind of stuff that the last guy wasn't doing so they're willing to pay more yeah. for that better property if you just show them that you're taking care of them and taking care of their family who's living in there and they don't have to put buckets on the floor to catch the rain you yeah. know like they're gonna you can ask for those things of your tenants because you're taking care of them yeah it's all about the intangibles man I mean if people know that you actually are going to be a good landlord and that they can call you and communicate with either you or your property manager. Like if they know that they can go out and ask you for simple little things, then a rent increase is going to be, you know, the same reason that they're not going to move is the same reason you don't want to put a new tenant in there. It's a headache. It's stress, you know, moving, I'm dealing with moving right now. Like it's a little bit stressful. If you have a tenant who's already living in there, the hassle for them to do another credit check and Mm -hmm. get, you know, find a weekend for, to have friends move their shit. Like, a hundred or two hundred dollar increase in rent for some people might be a lot but if you do it in a way that is like hey this is why your rent increased this is the reason why it won't increase in the future or why if you do agree to stay here i'm willing to do maybe an 18 month or maybe a 24 month if they are yeah they do 24 yeah if they have a little bit of payment history it's a little bit easier but like you know especially non-section 8 people who you know you don't have to fill out all this paperwork for and it's not like a government paycheck 
if you're just getting a blue collar person, you know, raising the rent on them after you've built that relationship is so much easier. Mm -hmm. And almost all of the time they'll say yes, instead of like, screw you, I'm moving somewhere else. Cause like, again, like you said, finding a good landlord in some cities. I mean, I haven't found it that I I can imagine there's some shitty landlords in Cleveland, but I I don't know. It's a hit or miss. so much. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's also the property management companies too. The amount of good property management companies in these markets too is very hard to find. Um, I have some clients, you know, that come and buy my rental properties from me and they're like, Antoine, can we use our own property management company? I'm like, sure. I met <laughs> all of them. Uh, yeah. I met all of them. You can go use whoever you want. I say, as soon as you sign the contract, you can use whoever you want. I would highly recommend my property management company, but if you want to use your own, you know, be my guest, but I'm not recommending that at all. Um, yeah. and so you actually manage your rental properties from over here. Yeah, there's not that many. Uh, Right now, I'm filling a three unit that I have in Cleveland Heights. I have two rentals, one down in Akron and another, that one in Orange. So it's right now five units. It's not that big of a deal for me. And I'm looking to buy a couple more three unit properties this year. Um, Again, like, you know, as we keep talking like this, I think we're going to get to the point where like, hey, what do you think about this 18 unit? Or what do you think about this one? Because like when you're dealing with other people's money and like I know construction, I don't like using my own money for stuff. It's a lot easier to just raise the money for the project. Investors are happy. I'm happy. And they get their little bit of interest. Um, I, I think that as you go through like cycles in your real estate business like you're finding i remember talking to you at dinner the other night you're like well i did 60 deals last year i want to do like 100 this year you couldn't have said that you know at the beginning of last year but like now that you've gotten in a certain comfort level and you're used to working with people i don't want to do like these high-end flips forever it's nice but there's like a certain amount of energy that it takes to find a good deal get it under contract finance it get my guys in there pull my permits do everything to get it to the point where I know I'm going to make money on the back end. Yeah. But like, I know I'm destined for doing, I mean, I'm looking to do it. I'm not going to lie. I'm looking to do an assisted living. I think that that's a market that's, I mean, if you wrap your head around the operations, the yeah. money is there, but like, you're also still doing a lot of good. Oh, there, yeah. In Cleveland where there's a lot of these big box D plus assisted living facilities. My grandparents have been to like, there's very few options. Yeah, that's and when true. you think about like, you know, you, you can put your parent in a, a home, like a house with six or seven other people for, you know, three, $4,000 a month. It rivals that, you know, 2000, 2500 a month that you could do to put them in assisted living. So I'm looking to get in that stuff. I'm looking to get in a bigger apartment deals. Um, I'm looking to JV on some stuff. But again, like you said, I have six projects of myself for myself going, I need to finish those up, sell them and just get a whole batch of new stuff. Got it. Can you explain a little bit? Do you have some numbers off the top of your head of what an assisted living would look like? Um, well, I haven't done one, but what it seems like is that the operator takes about 30 to 40% of your profit. Uh, you do have to hire a sort of like director of nursing, a nurse who's had some experience in those facilities before, um, you know, they would be operating, there would be, have to be someone there 24 seven. There's these things called adult care facilities though. So adult care yeah, facilities yeah. don't actually need to be a nurse. You can go to a class and like take six weeks worth of classes for it. Oh, wow. But the kicker there is you can't administer any medication. Mm-hmm. So if you're administering one piece of medication to one of your, which most likely a lot of these people need medication, um, then you're going to have to have a nurse manage your facility. There's all sorts of permits and there's all sort of like fire marshal inspection, certificate of occupancy. Each state is different. So in Ohio, it's managed by the Ohio Department of Mental Health. And so you can pull up their application off their website and kind of see what it would take to kind of convert one of your facilities. It actually doesn't seem that bad. Like there's extra plumbing and the doorways, the, the doorways do need to be a certain width. Uh, there needs to be a sprinkler system and the fire marshal has to like have you Verify. do a couple more things. Yeah. So, But to me, any business is just about wrapping your head around a new model and working with people. Like I don't know how to be a nurse but I know other people who do. So in order to build a big business, like from what I have now with, you know, what I think is big, even with just eight employees, um, getting other people who are really good at what they do and partnering with them is just how shit gets done. So I'm looking to do that. Um, if you want to talk more about that, you know, I'd be fine with it. It's just, you know, once you give people a model, so like you can make probably 10, Ten twenty thousand dollars a month off some of these, but it's probably going to take you a year just to get your facility up and running, maybe six months to a year. So, you know, think about, uh, maybe buying a four bed, four bath house out in like Pepper Pike or Gates Mills, converting the floor plan into like an eight bed facility and then putting an operator in there and charging, you know, three. The, here's the thing. The average person who's in assisted living in Ohio is paying thirty two hundred and change a month. Jesus. So if you but think about it, have you ever had like a grandparent that you've had a place in assisted? I mean, it's a personal question. Mine but are like, in Canada, so it's all free. 
Great. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. People in the United States need to realize you don't live in the best country in the world. So, and people in Europe live with their grandparents. Like, yeah. would you live with your grandma? Probably not. You know, so there's just a lot of different nuances to like each country, but the result is in this country you have paid assisted living and it's basically 24 hour in home care, yeah. uh, for a group home. So the average person's paying 3,200 a month. If you get eight people paying you $3,200, it's like what? $27,000. And when you have an operator, you're paying 10, $12,000 in expenses. That's a pretty damn nice return, especially for a month, yeah. like 10, $12,000 a month. You can get one of those and that could be your retirement. That's you true. Know, not, not to shit on like apartments or any other sort of investing, but like, you know, the amount of management it takes to have a 20 or 25 unit apartment, there's a lot of property management that goes into that. Yeah. And then to see, you know, maybe four or $7,000 a month for like a ton of headache. Sometimes it's great. Like, don't get me wrong. Like the multifamily no. stuff I'm looking to get into, it makes sense. But you know, to me to build a really big business, um, you know, it, it, it you kind of do have to look heavily at the numbers yeah. because there's a lot of extraneous expenses on my flips that like are just, I mean, utilities right now during the winter time are crazy. Insurance gets up there. Holding costs are crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, you need to be prepared for the big costs if you're going to take big risks. That's yeah. that's really the big the big lesson. I agree. Yeah, and I mean yeah. that sounds like a whole business because I was looking at the assisted living thing in Memphis, Tennessee, and you had to like register with the city. You had to get these permits. You had to have this person sign the permits that verifies that they're going to be there 24 seven. You had to somebody had to have somebody who was, or you had to have like two or three people because there was like eight hour shift and like it was an eight hour rotating clock and then one person had to be there and that person had to be x like a nurse or something like sure. that who can give the medication in case something happens in the middle of the night to one of these people then there has to be a nurse who can give that medication yeah. right so it's like almost like having a hotel but that's on yeah. a 24-hour clock you know all the time yeah the, the more i've really dug into it i mean not to divert away from like real estate or construction or anything but like you really do have to have a heart and you really have to be like yeah. a good person to run one of these because like you are going to be dealing with death. You're going to be dealing with yeah. strokes. You're going to be dealing with Alzheimer's and all sorts of really, really sad stuff. I mean, I've had four, all four of my grandparents pass away in the last few years. So it's like a very recent kind of thing. And when you have to deal with, you know, some two of my grandparents had 24 hour in-home care, $19 an hour for the last two years of their life. You have any wow. idea how expensive that gets, but they got to stay in their home. Another one of my grandparents went to some big box assisted living facility in Cleveland where there's all sorts of lawsuits every week about, you know, how terrible the people get taken care of. I think he had a good experience with that. But like when you're just a number, you know, yeah. there, that's why what what's interesting to me about these small in-home facilities, it's like you really are taking care of people. They're getting that country feel because like there are a lot of like nice rural areas in, in the suburbs yeah. in Cleveland where they're close enough to their kids. They can still go see them, but they are like kind of living out their golden years. Um, yeah, I mean, shit, man, like I've kind of like convinced myself to like keep getting into it. And I'm just going to keep digging until I can do one. I'm yeah. telling you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it sounds great. And I think they do like that's the thing, too. It's like it almost opens up a whole variety of kind of properties that most people wouldn't buy. Like, for example, I don't even buy houses that are over like 1800 square feet because renting them out. The turnover for those things is like ridiculous. Like your cash flow is all gone if you have to turn over that property once a year because it's so big. So imagine mm -hmm. replacing all carpet or all flooring in an 1800s, 2,000-square-foot house. It gets expensive as hell. So it's almost like it opens up a whole opportunity for those properties that a lot of people aren't even looking at. Like you said, rural. I don't even touch the rural stuff. But may many people who are in those care facilities may want to live rurally. And they don't want to be in the city center and shit like that, right? They want to be in like a nice little quiet place where they can hang out and go outside and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Urban upscale, I think, is the word you were looking for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, I think for anybody who's getting interested in like just starting at real estate, like obviously, you know, doing a flip isn't the isn't the least riskiest thing you can do. But if you're partnering on it with like three or four other people and you have maybe somebody with really good W-2 income who can finance it and you kind of know where the money's going and you kind of know what your construction budget is up front, it should be relatively quick if you're in a city that's easy to deal with and if you're not having any sort of crazy like weather constraints. So I mean, the best advice, if, if someone's going to go in like a cold weather area, buy something in the springtime when it's super wet out and you got wet basements and you can negotiate all sorts of things. You know, <laughs> and then when it's summertime, it's super easy to do construction. Yeah. Right now, I'm dealing with, you know, some of my houses sitting for, you know, a couple months because it's freezing cold outside. No one wants to go to open houses during like Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's like the real estate market's completely dead during those times. Yeah. So like 
that might not be the case in LA. So like knowing your market and kind of getting used to talking to a lot of other realtors, talking to a lot of other investors, you know, that's where it's at. Like that foundation is where it's at. And then as you get out, then you're going to realize, oh, it makes sense for me to buy something turnkey and manage it to start. Or, you know, maybe it makes yeah. sense for me to partner with my buddy who has a little bit more income <clears throat> kind of finance things and yeah. or my buddy who knows a little bit about construction and can actually do work physically on some of these properties so like there's a lot of different nuances to like reasons why you'd want to get into a certain investment mm -hmm. to start but like again anyone listening to this podcast is doing the right thing yeah no i agree yeah and i always say look at your resources so learn as much as you can then look at your resources and be like all right which play is the best for me right now it doesn't need to be forever i mean you started with with flipping houses while having a full-time job. I mean, I normally don't recommend that, but with the amount of resources you had, the time available that you had, and the people that you knew, it made it a possibility. But a lot of yeah. people don't have the contractor. They don't have the cash. They don't have a good W, like good enough W-2 income yeah. um, in order to buy those properties, fund them, fund the rehab for them, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. it's all about learning as much as you can and then looking at your resources. What's best for me now? It doesn't need to be something yeah. you do forever. Um, but it's something that can get you started. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And then in you're already in it. I think what's been important for me recently is to kind of audit myself and like, what am I doing in my business? Do I really want to keep doing this, you know, year in and year out? Do I want to kind of tweak things? Yeah. Like right now I have a project I bought for 166,000 and my rehab budget on it is 130. Like that's a ridiculous amount of rehab for something, but you know, I'm hopefully going to market it listed for 429, 419, something in that range. And it'll be a nice project. It's just if I didn't have it drag on so much and if it didn't get affected by all my other projects, I basically just took on too much work. And so now I'm feeling the effects of that. I just need to put my head down, finish the projects I have and get into a new batch of projects. But that's yeah. also going to hinder me down in the fall time. So when those projects are finishing up, I have to really think about, OK, well, do I network with other investors out here? Do I try to get into more uh, multifamily stuff? Can I joint venture on some bigger projects? Uh, do I put my head down and maybe convert one of my flips into an assisted living facility and start yeah. the permitting process? You know, it's important to constantly audit what you're doing and kind of make sure that, like, am I really put, setting myself up for long-term success? Because, yeah. like, flip, I mean, I think flipping's great, but, like, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Like, I might make, like, 32000 on a flip, and it's just, okay, what now? Like, yeah. next. Really, yeah. Like, it doesn't provide you any sort of future, nope. um, you know, whatsoever. It's a quick cash. It's great. If you get it, sometimes deals make more sense to rent out immediately than to flip. And, yeah. But with this three unit right now, I'm struggling with it because I can make probably about 1200 bucks a month net off of it, which is great, um, even with taxes. It's in a great location. So for my family, for my livelihood, to make $1,200 a month and probably more like 1300 1400 in the years to come, that's really hard to say no to. But uh -huh. then again, if I could sell it right away and make 40, 50 grand, you know, and just keep moving, <laughs> it's nice to have those options. But like, you know, I've gone through a lot to get to that option. Yeah. I think ultimately I'm probably going to sell that to an investor. Um, you know, it, it's just a matter of options at this yeah. point. So if that's anybody's looking for a three unit, uh, <laughs> <that's>... <laughs> yeah. it's in a great yeah, no. area in Cleveland. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Taxes are only $12,000 a year. Hey, you know, hey man, seven, <laughs> 7,300, 7,300, but I, I'll give you, how about this? Let's go through the numbers on that and you can tell me what you think about it Hit since it. we are here. So three unit, um, it's in a really good street. Um, I would say the first unit I'm doing a little bit nicer than the second and third, just okay. because it ultimately it's probably going to be sold to an owner occupant. A lot of people are going to buy a three unit property to live in themselves and rent out the other two units. They would literally be living yeah. for free or even make money off their mortgage. Yep. So 7,300 on the property taxes. Um, it's worth, I have an appraisal of 230. Uh, bought it for 72 and I'm probably putting about 70 to 80 into it. Uh, I'm about halfway through construction. So okay. let's just say the rehab is 75. And my holding costs up till this point were about thirteen hundred. Let's just say fifteen hundred a month with utilities. So, okay. um, you know. So you're all in for I'll, like one seventy eight, one eighty, something like that. Maybe a little bit less. One eighty, sell it for two thirty. So that's how you got that fifty k profit number. Rent. Yeah, I mean probably you know probably more close to like forty, but got it. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And then yeah, after you pay the closing costs and blah blah yeah. blah. But my uh, note that I have on it is only 147,000. It was a hard money loan. So if it. I refinance, I'm going to get 75% of 230 True. or 70 even a whatever lender. Yeah. So like I pull out 12,000 in equity and put tenants in it from day 1, that would be that's like am I right? Like that's really hard to say no to. I would 
you, so what you can do with this one is I would do a cash out refinance and you can do 230 is the ARV. They get a 70% loan to value, you pull out 161 and that's about how much you have. You have 180 in it. So let's say you're all in for 20 grand, right? You have $20,000 left in the property. Right. Yeah, where'd you get 180? You're 72 plus 75 is like 75 one. plus 80 plus holding your holding costs, costs yeah. plus yeah. the refinance costs. Got it. So let's yeah. just say 180. So you'll have yeah. you'll have twenty thousand dollars left in the deal. What are the rents going to be? Eleven hundred on the first, eleven hundred on the second, eight fifty nine hundred on the top. So eleven hundred plus eleven hundred plus. I know. And keep in mind, this is combined. I do know the area A, but it. But I also had the rents on the appraisal. So yeah. when I bought okay. the thing, I got it appraised. So that. Um, so and yeah, twenty eight. Last unit is. It's like eight. Let's just say what to make it an even number. Can we say 850? 800, 800. 800. Okay. So 3k a month in, in uh, gross income, your yep. taxes are 7,300 a year, which is about $600 a month. Insurance is what? Two grand, three grand. Mm, a good policy for a three unit, you know, maybe like 120 a month. Okay. Maybe 40. So let's do 120 per month. And then you're managing that property by yourself. There's no, not much property management fees. Um, the other thing you have to pay for on a three unit is lawn, water, and sewer, correct? Um, yeah, so the city of Cleveland just took over Cleveland Heights Water. So it's through the city of Cleveland Water Department. I have three gas meters on the property, so okay. three separately metered uh, uh, utilities that, I, that the tenants will pay for. Okay. So... Typically, that my tenants pay for everything except for maybe if you have a unique situation where you have like in that third unit, I could have someone being like a, a property manager. They'll cut the grass. They'll you know make sure that the property has good maintenance, and they'll get like a little bit of rent reduction. Okay. Uh, but yeah, basically, it's about three thousand in rents per month, hopefully. Okay. And then so I'm just so on the utility side, everything's going to be passed off to those tenants. Yes. Okay. So three thousand a month minus the six hundred for your taxes minus the one twenty. So 2,280, so 2,200 a month in your uh, net operating income. Now we have to look at your debt service. I would say it's anywhere from 1,400, 1,500 a month. Okay, so 1,400 minus the 20, so you'll make 2,200, then you gotta pay off your loan. So 2,200 minus 1,400, which I agree, it's gonna be around that number. So $800 a month you'll net on $20,000. So that is a $800 a month times 12 months is $9,600 a year on a $20,000 investment. So your return is 50% per year on your money. So yeah. every, you know, every two years you're doubling your money. Yeah. But, but I, I know the area and that has been completely revitalized. It's uh, kind of like Cedar Lee um, in, on the East side in Cleveland Heights, very close to university circle. Yeah. And there's just been so much built out for the area like yeah. that will appreciate a little bit. There's not much appreciation in Ohio, but, and things like this, when you buy, right, uh, you can, so it's a really good location. And if I hold that forever, it just, it's going to be, going. yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that, that's the, so that's the one key factor that I use to say like, okay, should I sell this one or should I keep it? So like the apartment building that we just bought, it's in an up and coming neighborhood, like in five or 10 years, that, building's going to be worth like triple the price. And I know it because I'm going to increase the rents. The rents are going to keep going up. It's yeah. close to the hospitals. It's close to St. Jude's. It's close to all this stuff. Which so, is that? The Memphis one? The Memphis one in Midtown. And Midtown yeah. is like, it's already B-class, but it's getting like, there was a brand new apartment building built a mile down the road with like 150, 200 units with, um, with like, like retail on the bottom. Yeah. So it was a Elon, Graystar, you know, they build those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So those are being built right around my property. Wow. And mine's like an old 1960s property that was super dilapidated. And all the properties that are commercial next to me are like law offices, banks, credit unions, and they're all nicely manicured. Yeah. So I know that that building is going to be worth a lot more over time. And then that's the reason why we got the longest loan that we could possible. Because we were like, okay, what's our strategy going to, you always want to have a plan A. There's always a plan B. You know, your plan A is to go and refinance and pull out the money. Let's say your refinance gets disapproved. Okay. Well, I still have option B, which is to sell it, take my 50 grand and go buy something else. Right. So, um, 
like that's kind of how I because I know in the future it's going to be worth triple the price. It's like, all right, well, that's going to be worth for doing nothing and making a 50% return on my money in three or five years. The building's going to be worth, you know, 450. Then I could sell it and then it's like a win win situation for you. Damn. Yeah, man. I need to get into Memphis. That good. <laughs> yeah. But you, but you know, as well as I do on like the retail side, hypothetically, let's say a good apartment deal popped yeah. up for like a little bit of a reduction from an investor. Let's say something like that popped up in like LA. How quickly would that, that deal get gobbled up? There's so much yeah. like other outside investor money. There's like Canadian money, Chinese money. There's out of state money. Literally it like pigeonholes these local investors into finding deals themselves rather than like going to the MLS because yeah. there's so many freaking there's like I mean how many other offers do you have to deal with with like a good multifamily deal it's very yeah. rare that you'd be the only person on the block no it's a, it's almost impossible right now like there's am I right like give people yeah. some context into like what it's like to like find a like a multifamily deal they are so overinflated yeah like the prices are crazy in like lakewood which is like an a-class area in cleveland yeah places like you know garfield or maple heights yeah they're like c-class areas but like even people from new york are like buying these things for ridiculous prices yeah. because they know that like that's a better place to put their money than the stock market well it's a better There's return too yeah it's a way better return and they're yeah. just hiring some, you know, whatever property manager. It's like they know they're going to get their return. So like if venture capitalists are going out and buying these things, like the other, you know, <laughs> B grade institutional investor is going to go and buy it yeah. too. Yeah. So, so what, so we had a couple of instances where I had my, my guys walk in apartment building and there was like an open house showing. And my guy calls me after he's like, Antoine, everybody and their mom was at this open house for this apartment building. So they had a couple of units open. You can walk through both of the buildings and it was like 80 unit apartment building. Yeah. And he calls me after he's like, everybody and their mom was at this building taking photos and you know, whether they would, they would be relaying information to the people across the country or on the other side of the world, you know, the yeah. Asian or Australian or Canadian investors. Um, yeah. And it, it's ridiculous. I mean, we, the reason why there's so many apartment building listings on the MLS and you may be, you know, wondering, Oh, why is there, why is there so many buildings like available and, and stuff like that? It's the people who are listing those properties are going to the owners and the owners are giving a ridiculous number because they know the market's hot. So even if their building's worth a million bucks and they want to sell it for two because they think, Oh, the market's already super hot. Right. The, then the listing agent who wants to get the listing is going to be like, yeah, we can list it for $2 million. Let's see if we get it. That's why there's so much bullshit inventory on LoopNet because the listing agents just try to get a large amount of listings. There's a, there's a broker in Memphis, Tennessee who has almost all the apartment building listings on LoopNet. But if you go and look at how many deals he sold in the last 24 months, he sold like two apartment buildings or one apartment building. So he's that's how you know that his strategy is to go and talk to these owners, see what price they want. And just like, he's just agreeing to them, even though if sure. the price is ridiculous, he's just gonna, it, it put, it's a good brand for him because he has all these, he has all these listings, right? He has 20 listings active at all times, but he only sells one or two a year because all of his prices are overinflated. Um, so yeah, it's, it's crazy. And I mean, like on some of these good deals, the ones that aren't on LoopNet there'll be 30 or 40 offers on these things in the first week as soon as yeah. the marketing gets out. Yeah. And another thing that I kind of realized, cause like a couple other buddies of mine started looking into getting, you know, commercial financing cause anything over four units, you're going to need to get, yeah. you know, a separate type of financing for what's messed up is like, if there's like investors from another country that have a ton of money and can completely outspend you, cash is always king in these things. Yeah. And like they, you can close a deal so much quicker with cash when you are, have like a lender involved, like for instance, like, I've dealt with like, let's say First Federal of Lakewood or something. It's a pretty popular conventional lender in Cleveland. Um, they make you walk through, walk them through the numbers and put the deal together for that specific building, for that address. So just to put in an offer, you have to like build the offer with the lender and get it approved. So like literally by like day three or four, like the deal is going to be gone. gone. So like if I have, you know, $1.2 million in my bank account, you know, even if something's listed at a million, I can say, you know, eight, eight twenty cash. Take yeah. it or leave it. I can close in 10 days. What yeah. do you think the owner is going to do? Yeah. They might negotiate with you a little bit, but like by the time negotiating is done, all the other like, you know, newer players on the block are just kind of going to get winded. So I think the best thing for new players on the block is to kind of network with investors and kind of know exactly what you want, exactly what area you want to buy in yeah. and like how you're going to manage it. So like 
you know, it's a lot easier to play ball when you're not dealing with like listed properties. I agree. Yeah. And I, that's why I always say start off with single families and multi, and like smaller multifamily, especially the residential side, because you can always the financing a whole lot easier. Um, it's a whole lot faster. And, you know, if you just have a good solid job like you had that W2 income, made your financing a walk in the park. But once you get into the commercial side, it's like, how much experience do you have? What are all the numbers for this deal? Where the residential side is like, we'll do an appraisal, we'll give you the loan, you know, 80% of whatever the appraisal is. And it's super yeah. easy. Yeah. The, the, like you got to be approved with some different type of lenders as like a backup. Like yeah. the, everyone, every investor should be approved by a hard money lender just as a backup, even if they have no intention of using it, yeah. because at least you can have some sort of like line of credit or like a, you know, a loan approval letter that like, Hey, this person's approved. Like I'm approved with two hard money lenders. I'm not going to use their whole freaking you know, million dollar line of credit, but yeah. like I have experience flipping. And so to, to have financing options when you're looking at deals like that's important yeah. I and mean, not everyone's going to have that much cash, Agreed. but yeah, it's, it's just important to have options, man. Yeah, I agree. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for coming on the show today. Any way that people can reach out to you if they have more questions, maybe want to ask them questions about Cleveland, want to do business with you, it's the best way. For sure. At Jared Lichten on Instagram. That's it. At awesome. Jared Lichten. Jared Lichten on Facebook, Instagram. I'm going to be I'm going to be starting to put out a lot of uh, video content pretty damn soon. So awesome. uh, you can key up my uh, how to spell my last name there. So at Jared Lichten on Instagram is probably the best way to get a hold of me. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show today. And if anybody wants to reach out to me, my Instagram is Martel Antoine. Um, so thanks again for coming on the show. Um, hopefully we'll have you back in another six months when you have an apartment building under contract. That you're working <laughs> <out>. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to convert that into an assisted living facility. Oh, and yeah. I'll have an amusement park in the backyard. I'll yeah, have all yeah. sorts of streams of income from it. <laughs> amusement park. Yeah. Or maybe we could come have you come back on and talk about the numbers and how it looks. You know, if you ever get one going, that'd be cool. Yeah. You know what's crazy? I don't think we even scratched the surface with either of our businesses. We had, you know, we've been on over an hour. Like, you know, there's easily there. I mean, just from one of my deals, I, I wish I could talk a little bit more about construction and contractors and how to protect yourself. But again, <laughs> You know, for another for another time, um, you know, any anyone with questions about contractors, you know, Jared L I C H T I N on Instagram is the best way to get a hold of me. Any questions, you're more than happy to reach out. Awesome, thanks, man. Talk to you soon. See ya.